You are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Rootbound is brought to you by sepals. You know, those little green things under the petals? I totally knew about them. Sepals, keep the petals safe. Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rootbound. I'm the host of the podcast. My name is Steve. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest who joins me on the podcast to share with everybody listening about a plant that means something to them. And then I share about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Here's a list of flowers and their meanings, excerpted from the book The Language of Flowers, published by George Rutledge and Sons in 1884, illustrated by Kate Greenaway. A rose means love. A daisy means innocence. A tulip means fame. Jasmine, amiability. Violets mean faithfulness. Zinnias means the thoughts of absent friends. Rosemary is for remembrance. Hydrangeas are for boasting and heartlessness. Hyacinth means sport, game, play. Dandelion, a rustic oracle. Lavender means distrust. Bachelor buttons mean celibacy. (laughs) Peach means your qualities, like your charms, are unequaled. Peony means shame, bashfulness. Wolfsbane means misanthropy. And persimmon means bury me amid nature's beauty. Now we're about to speak with a guest who's going to talk about a flower that has lots of different meanings. But the next time you want to give someone flowers, maybe this list will help you. I think it's weird that when you give someone flowers, you're really saying, here you go. Now watch these die. Because I like you. I feel like you should give someone flowers when you want to threaten them. Here, you're next. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. The plant I have for you are calla lilies. Very good. I I know why this plant is meaningful to you, at least one reason, but maybe you can share with the audience why uh, this plant is meaningful to you. Yeah, there are a couple of reasons why uh, this plant is special to me, but the most important reason, uh, which you know, is that my cat is named Calla after the calla lily since she is a white cat and it somehow just seems to fit her. <laughs> it really does. It's a perfect name for her. Yeah. And this is an especially, I guess, timely time to be talking about Kala and Kala lilies for me. Um, because Kala was diagnosed actually with advanced nasal lymphoma about a oh, year ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was really, really scary. She was really sick for a while. Um, 
And we were told she only had a couple of months to live at the time. But we started her in radiation and chemo, and she responded really well. And uh, just last week, actually, this is why this moment is great. Uh, She had her first CT scan since finishing her treatments, and it was confirmed that she's now cancer-free. Oh, yay, Calla. And also, I mean, the timing of this, if you just sent me pictures of Calla lilies blooming in your yard, so that's probably part of what you're going to say, so sorry if I spoiled that for you, but that's just <laughs> magical timing to hear that Calla has got a clean bill of health when the Calla lilies are blooming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, I'm just really, really happy to be celebrating Calla right now. And yeah, like you're saying, we have cow lilies where we live. Um, so we purchased our home in California a few years ago and were surprised to find cow lilies in the backyard, a uh, sign that we should get the house, I think. <laughs> as we've come to learn, though, cow lilies grow like crazy all around here. Uh, they even grow in huge patches just down our street. And they're just blooming right now. They started, I think, a couple weeks ago. Very good. Well, a Cheeto, one of my cats, he's in the background. He is saying congratulations <laughs> to Kala uh, with his sleepy face right now. But uh, the other cats Aww. send their regards as well. Uh, well, that's really cool. Um, well, that yeah, that's great. Well, tell tell me more about Kala lilies. I only really just know what they are. I know mm-hmm. nothing else about them. I know what they look like. Um, but yeah, tell me what you learned about Kala lilies. Yeah, I learned so much. I really didn't know that much about Kala lilies before. There wasn't really any other reason why I named Calla Calla Lily besides her being white, but uh, they're a really fascinating flower. Um, And so to start with, I think what can be a little confusing sometimes is Calla Lily is sometimes referred to, um, refers to the genus, uh, but it really refers to a species. You know, we think of the white Calla Lily, that is the species, uh, let's see if I can say this right, (laughs) Xantodeskia. Ethiopica. Um, And so that's the pure white cow lily. That's the flower that I'm going to be talking about. Um, But it's interesting to know a little bit more about the genus too. So I can talk a little bit about that first. Sure. Yeah. Can you say that genus name again, or at least try to? (laughs) (laughs) So the genus name is Xantodeskia. Oh, cool. Sounds cool. And so the genus is made up of many species of plants, flowering plants that look like uh, the white cow lilies, but they come in many different colors. They can be pink, red, purple, even black. I think those ones look really cool. Um, Yeah. And so they're all native to Southern Africa around Lesotho, South Africa, Mozambique, that area. And they were first cataloged in the 18th century by a Swedish botanist. Uh, They were cataloged as a lily, but they're in fact not a lily at all. Uh, And cow lilies are not a part of the calla. can't remember if it's a family or or genus, but they're not actually callas either. Um, And so it took a German botanist who later corrected the error. He created the genus Xantodeskia, but the name lily has persisted over time. Interesting. That's that happens so much like with like uh, plant taxonomy. Um, there's it's so confusing. And there's like this kind of like um, I've learned through the podcast There's this kind of almost like a dibs rule when it comes to taxonomy, like whoever <laughs> like named it something first, it just has to be stuck with that unless someone else can really like 
really show that it should be something else. And so there's lots of cases like that where it's like, well, it's called this thing. And then they're like, uh, well, I guess we're going to stick with that because you, you called this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure as we learn more information over time and have to correct things. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and so Zantadeski, though, so they're, they're not a part of the Lilies family, right? They're uh, in the same family as philodendron and other plants that are known for their beautiful leaves. And so we'll come back to uh, that because the calla lily leaf is uh, really special. But so calla is this species, the Xanthodeschia ethiopica. That's the white variation that are most commonly known and culturally referenced. And so those are the ones they grow in clumps. They have these dark green leaves that have a broad arrow shape to them. And what many people think what I thought of as the white flower, it's actually not the flower. It's a modified leaf that grows in a cone shape around a yellow spike that's the actual flower. Interesting. I'm looking at a picture now online and just thinking of it, and that makes a lot of sense that it's uh, not a botanical petal. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Once you hear it, it makes a lot of sense, but I had no idea of this differentiation, and I I don't know if you've talked about these terms before on the podcast. Uh, I wasn't familiar with them, but the modified leaf is called a spathe, and Uh. then the yellow spike with the flower cluster is called a spadix. Uh, I think spadix has come up before, but what's the other one you just said? Spathe. I don't think we've heard about a spathe. We've talked about a few other flowers that have like this non-traditional flower arrangement, so we talked about the the mimosa tree, which doesn't have any petals. It only has like the little like pistols or maybe those are stamen. I forget. And then we just recently talked about hydrangeas, which are modified, uh, um, uh, sepals. They don't have petals. Mm-hmm. They only mm-hmm. have sepals, but the sepals turn colors. But this is that yeah, that's very interesting. A modified leaf that kind of forms this same, does the same duty as a petal, I guess, of like being bright right. and attracting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I had no idea flowers uh, could be made up in so many different ways. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so cool. Yeah, and so cowlilies are found in wet areas. Uh, They like to be near streams and ponds, uh, but they're pretty hardy, really. They can tolerate a wide range of moisture conditions, and they can be evergreen when there's enough rainfall. And I think... These reasons together are perhaps why they're found in so many places now. So, you know, they're originally from Southern Africa, but you can find them all over the world now. Um, They were found in Europe as early as the 17th century. And they're really common in New Zealand, Australia, and then in the U.S., coastal California, where I live. Very interesting. You know, spoiler alert, but... And this, I didn't, I swear I didn't do this on purpose, but I also picked a plant that is from Africa that is naturalized in California. And that's totally coincidence. Oh, I, I'm really curious to hear about that. Not exactly coincidence because it kind of like ties in, you'll see the story, but I didn't, I didn't know that calla lily was also from Africa. So that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. And there are so many plants that are found in California that are from South Africa. Like I'm pretty sure if I went to South Africa, it would look almost identical at this point. Uh-huh. I'm sure there's a story behind that, uh, but I'm not sure what it is. Very, yeah, indeed. Um, so yeah, what else? Um, they're 
because uh, they're, they're found in a lot of places, they spread pretty easily. They grow in these clumps and they can be really invasive and they're highly invasive, really a problem in Western Australia and New Zealand. Mm. And I think they are considered invasive here in, in coastal California specifically, not other parts of California. Interesting. So that's why they grow so well as perhaps they're, they're one of those pretty invasive species. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I've, I, I talked about in an episode, you know, that the word invasive is pretty like, uh, open to interpretation, right. Of what really is invasive. And like, you know, we've spread plants on purpose or by accident, but plants also spread themselves and it, it gets really complicated. And, uh, I forget what episode it is, but the the federal government has a like a definition for what invasive means. Mm. But even that is like a like you could interpret open to interpretation because it actually has a high emphasis on like negative economic impacts to like certain things. Oh, wow. It's like you know, but that yeah. Anyway, it's it, it's it's a complicated question. So yeah, I I think you know just because it's yeah, I I don't I don't want to cast negative aspersions on plants. <laughs> But you know right. they can also they can also like be not great. So um, my plant yeah. also has the same property. Actually, the one I'm going to talk about it is also uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So any anyway, that's so so interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's hard because I mean invasive plants. I mean I'm sure most of the plants around where I live are considered invasive. They're they're not from here, and they a lot of them spread pretty quickly. But yeah. Yeah, at what point do they cross the line into being a bad plant? <laughs> right, right. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, do you have any other fun facts or dazzling details about the calla lily? Yeah, so let's see. They're, they're also poisonous, uh, so they can be severely poisonous to Ooh. pets and children. Uh, they can even, uh, like, irritate your skin if you touch them. Oh, wow. I did not but, know that. Yeah, I, I didn't either. I, I guess I haven't touched the plants and or the cow lilies in my yard that much but <laughs> and uh the so the rhizomes those are like the the bulbous tubes at the the base that's where mm-hmm. the leaves grow out of uh those have been used for medical treatment in south africa actually oh interesting uh, i don't think there's a record of that being used outside of the area much and you'd have to be very careful since they are very poisonous or the the leaf part is yeah. Tell Kala not to eat that one. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think the most interesting part of Kala lilies are their cultural importance and how they've been shown in art and media throughout history. And perhaps since they spread so easily um, and because they're so beautiful, have a distinct shape, uh, they are one of the oldest flowers to be referenced culturally. Interesting. So they they show up in tons of different places. So there's the Greek story of where Zeus, Greek god, brought Hercules, who was, of course, born from a human mother. So he was a demigod. Uh, Zeus brought Hercules to Hera, his wife, to nurse her breast milk, hoping that he would then gain supernatural powers. Uh, Hera, unsurprisingly, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. I think he was not I a mean, great guy all around, yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but Hera awoke, you know, wasn't happy, and pushed Hercules away. As she did so, drops of her milk 
flew across the sky to then create the Milky Way. And Ooh. the drops that fell on the ground grew into the divinely beautiful calla lilies. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's there are Roman stories that are kind of similar. Uh, there's Venus, the goddess of beauty, was apparently jealous of how pure and beautiful calla lilies were. So she cursed the flower and gave it its spiked yellow spadix, which personally I don't think makes it any less beautiful, but no. <laughs> story there. Uh, so there are yeah, stories of cow lilies everywhere through history. Uh, there are um, stories of it being associated with the Bible. Even you'll see cow lilies in pictures with the Virgin Mary often. Right. And, yeah. uh, the Egyptians associated calla lilies with fertility. And I think what's really interesting is that through all of these different stories and cultures, calla lilies have come to mean so many different things. Uh, for instance, they're used in both weddings and funerals. They're, they're associated with loss, but celebration and beauty, purity, holiness, faith, uh, lust, sexuality, um, I guess really whatever people are putting onto them and see in these flowers, but it's just a really interesting part of calla lilies and culture. One last thing, one of my favorite parts of calla lilies, they're depicted in art by lots of artists, Matisse, uh, Giorgio O'Keefe, and my favorite, Diego Rivera. So oh, yeah. Diego Rivera, he's this 20th century artist from Mexico and he has over t 12 paintings, I think, that have calla lilies featured in them very, very largely. They're often shown in these huge bundles being carried by indigenous peasants with their faces hidden. And when you see these paintings, you're struck by just how large and bright these flowers are in contrast um, with and overpowering the human figures. And so there's a lot of rich symbolism here, I think. Uh, they're used in a few different ways. One could be to highlight class and social inequities, which are uh, a common topic or common theme of Rivera's paintings. Um, and another, some think, is to show both the beauty of Mexico's indigenous peoples, but also their suffering. So I, I just love this contrast. The paintings are beautiful. I'll have to, have to go check them out. The calla lilies are in bloom again. Such a strange flower. Suitable to any occasion. I carried them on my wedding day, and now I place them here in memory of something that has died. He needs a good thrashing. You poor child. Have you gathered here to mourn, or are you here to bring me comfort? Well, thank you for sharing calla lilies with me. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? I would love to hear about your plant. Okay, so my plant is a plant that I was uh, reacquainted with, actually, when I was out in California for your wedding. Oh! But it's a plant <laughs> that I uh, have a kind of a an embarrassing story about, kind of, uh, from my from my <laughs> youth. Um. And I'll tell you this is a plant name now, and you probably know it. And there's there's lots to this plant, which I didn't know. But the plant, I called it ice plant. Do you know uh, ice yes. plant? <laughs> yeah. Very familiar. 
Yeah. And uh, it is also sometimes called Seafig, apparently, which I didn't know until I, I was using the Seek app when I was out there in California for your wedding. And I saw some and I was like, what is this called? Actually, and apparently it's sometimes called Seafig, which we'll get into in a minute. But I'm going to start with my okay. embarrassing story and why this plant stood <laughs> to me. So, so I was like, what plant I'm going to choose? And I was like going back and forth. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's that ice plant. And I was like, oh, this memory came to me. And uh, so the first part is not that embarrassing. It's kind of fun. So I used to live in San Diego, which you know, and you're, you've got family out in San Diego too. Um, and uh, ice plant is everywhere there. It's everywhere all up and down the coast. I think I think when you get a little bit further north in California, it starts to go away. But all from like mid-California mm-hmm. down to Southern California, all over the coast, it's just everywhere. And for those of you who don't know, it's, it's a succulent. Uh, so it has these really big fat leaves that are like tubular and they're like squishy. Um, mm-hmm. It's called ice plant apparently because uh, the little hairs on it sometimes it has can look like frost from certain angles, but it has nothing to mm. do with ice. Um, and I think the one that I saw by your place doesn't have that look as much as uh, there. I, I'm kind of talking about two different species here, both in the the genus Carpobrotus, but uh, I think the one that was mostly where you uh, live is a uh, Carpobrotus chileensis. Um, and the other one that's maybe a little more common in San Diego is Carpobrotus edulis. And I think it has a little bit more of this, these little fine white hairs that kind of from a distance might look like it's covered in frost. So that's why I think it's called ice okay. plant. Mm-hmm. It's a weird name for a plant that grows only in like, uh, you know, <laughs> the kind of environments that have no, never get any ice. So that's why. Um, but anyway, it grows everywhere. And one time I was like down at the beach with a friend. I think I had just like tried to surf or was going to surf. I never was very good at surfing. But anyway, the, uh, these like hills going down to the beach would just be covered with the stuff. And because it's a succulent, you know, it's so like squishy and it grows like super thick, like, you know, two or three feet thick sometimes massively. And so something that I, that, that I did, I think at least on one this occasion, but I think on multiple occasions is just like rolling down the hill. <laughs> or just like even just like tumbling down the hill like we would literally just like jump off this hill and just like bound and like topple oh over the the ice plant because it's so it sounds squishy. like fun it was so much fun um but the the embarrassing part is it's like i feel like i still am not very good at like um like self image of like of just like understanding like what i look like like I, like I, right now i have like a really big <laughs> beard and like my hair is really long but i, I have to like acknowledge that I, I forget that my beard grows and my hair grows and things like that about it's just like as far as like how okay. people perceive me i've never been very good at that and so at the time when i was jumping down these plants i had on these brand new cargo pants <laughs> that's kind of embarrassing to start with um and and through the process of of tumbling down this ice plant hill my pants just got completely stained uh from the ice plant oh my gosh and then, like the next day, or maybe a few days later, was uh, like the uh, like a uh, graduation ceremony for the high school marching band. They had this like big event every year, and I was not graduating, but everyone had to show up. Oh, I think I did. I know I got some kind of award or something. No, I don't know. A recognition, I think that everybody got something. <laughs> but everyone, you were supposed to dress up to this. That was like the whole. Our band was like very like had very strict rules, and like you're supposed to like look nice. And I showed up wearing these like stained ice plant cargo plant pants and just like oh my god and and i i was not embarrassed at the time it was only after someone like commented oh you just like don't care do you like like someone thought i was cool (laughs) because i just didn't care and i should and i was like oh i just totally like looked looked like a fool up there uh because of ice plant so that's why it really stood out to me um oh my gosh i I was expecting it to go a different way because i think of ice plants 
because they're my dog's favorite place to poop. And <laughs> I was talking to a friend and it's their dog's favorite place to poop too. So I think it could be mm. full of dog poop also. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what the stains were. I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, I did find, I was trying to Google, like, do, did other people do this? Did other people like roll down ice plants? And I did find a YouTube video of like some kids rolling down ice plant hill and then I found this one reference, which I'll link in the show notes to a woman talking about how like it made her start thinking about climate change at some point. It was a really interesting article, but she talked about like she was someone was talking about ice plant with them and they were saying, well, we can help fight this invasive plant, which I said it's an invasive area by just uh, helping uh, kill it. And one thing where you can kill it is to just smash it. And if you roll down the hill a bunch, <laughs> you like kill it. And and then apparently I don't know if this is true, if this is apocryphal, but the, the person who I had this experience, I think when they're younger said that the professor who was like talking about this said that hill over there was where we were, we have been rolling for a few years and there's no ice plant anymore. And now we're rolling over here. Uh, oh, so wow. anyway, put on your cargo shorts and uh, our cargo pants <laughs> and uh, roll down the <laughs> ice plant. If you want to stop this invasive plant. Um, but anyway, I had no other thing about it. I didn't know anything about it back then. I was very not plant curious when I was in high school. Um, and so when I was out in California for your wedding and we went out to that, there's that lighthouse that's like, Oh, you know, a uh, oh, oh, little ways away and yeah. i saw it and i was like oh yeah this stuff this is i remember this stuff what's this deal and i of course scanned it with one of those apps and uh i've learned the story that it is highly invasive it is from southern africa as well um and uh it, it is a really interesting plant um it, i found one article that that referenced there was like some early references that they said it was actually native to california and they're like how could that be because it's definitely mm -hmm. not um, but some people theorize that it actually got introduced really early, like before the botanist showed up when it was just like boats showing up and that perhaps it got introduced, uh, with ballast that was dropped because you to back in the day when you wanted when you needed to load your ship with ballast, you would just scoop up sand from the shore and the sand might've had ice plant in it. So maybe a boat visited South oh. Africa at some point filled up with a bunch of sand for ballast. And at some point dumped it out on the West coast. Um, and there's some some uh, reason to that as well. And I couldn't find if this is why. So this is just a theory. But there's two species I mentioned, Carpobrotus edulis, which that means edible, which it is edible. This is really fascinating. Uh, and then the other one is Carpobrotus chileensis. And that means like Chilean Carpobrotus. But it is not from Chile either. But you can imagine <laughs> the same process happening in Chile of like it getting introduced there and then becoming so common that people just assumed it's from Chile and now everyone knows mm -hmm. that it's not. So uh, Carpobrotus, by the way, the genus, which there's a, at least seven in Southern Africa, um, means carpo means fruit and brotus means edible. So it's like edible fruit. Oh, wow. So, And that leads to the other name that it's called is the sea fig. Um, All right. And there are, and I didn't, I think it was the wrong time of year, but there are uh, the flowers, which the flowers are really beautiful. They're like these bright, I don't know what color are the ones over there. They're like bright red. I think there's a few different colors. Um, I think they're bright pink over here. Yeah, they're pink. really pretty. Yeah. And maybe yeah. purple. But they do turn into a fruit. And when oh, you wow. cut that I fruit in that. half, it looks like a fig. Like inside. The inside <laughs> kind of looks like a fig. Um, but you have to look. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, we, the fruit itself kind of doesn't look super tasty, I guess, at least to our you know, idea of like commercial fruits because they're kind of small. And they have a little bit of that like thick leafy stuff on the top um and it, even then you have to really apparently peel it a lot 
because the outside is like really sour and salty and, and not really nice. Um, but inside, apparently mm-hmm. there's a quite a sweet fruit. And in South Africa, it is a really common thing. I found a video of like, you know, it's, it's commonly purchased in markets. People make jam as a finger, apparently a really common thing that people make out of it. But you can also just eat it fresh, uh, the fruit. Oh. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And, and it, you know, uh, I, I, I like those, uh, you know, it's a, when there's an invasive plant, it's really great when it's edible because then you have no guilt and just eating as much of it as you want. So, um, maybe next <laughs> yeah, time in California, I have to go find those. yeah, give it a try. If you try, send me some pictures. Um, I'll send you the, the link to like how to prepare them. Um, and you probably want to make sure there's been no dogs around, I guess. Uh, but I don't know, you have to, you have <laughs> yeah. to peel it. So I guess you could wash it. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting. Um, I, I thought I copy and pasted a couple of the, um, the local names for the fruit, but I'm missing those. So I'll put those in the show notes. But the one that stood out to me, and I was reading a list of all the um, the other names for it uh, in Africa, and the one in Afrikaans is spelled V-Y-G-I-E-S. But I presume, with my limited understanding of how Afrikaans is pronounced, that it would be pronounced <laughs> figgies, figgies, which I guess just means oh, little okay. figs. <laughs> Yeah, figgies. Oh my God, fi- that's I don't know how to pronounce that Y, but they just mean, it's like, oh, let's go pick some figgies. I'm definitely not pronouncing it right, but it means little figs. Um, we'll call them figgies. Yeah, little figgies. Yeah, go get some figgies. Uh, so that's really interesting. Um, okay, a couple just last things. Uh, after they might have been brought in as ballast, that is only according to one person's theory, and I don't know, maybe there's more to it. It makes sense. Um they were definitely at least brought in or at least cultivated in California to stabilize uh, along roads and uh, railways. Mm. And sometimes they're called um, highway ice plant because like all in California, they have been planted and cultivated along highways, supposedly to keep the soil in place. And the thing is, is that they do a decent job of that until they don't. Because like oh, they really? can really keep sand in place because they are this like sea plant, but you know how big and thick they get. And then there's a point where sometimes they just get so heavy that oh. the whole just chunk falls off and then pulls all the topsoil with it. So they're kind of not really good at, at, at what they were brought in to do. And I think in general, they're not really regarded as a, as a good plant. Uh, they crowd out a lot of um, native plants uh, in California. There's an Instagram account. I follow. I'm blanking on the name, but I'll link, put a link in the show notes. But I saw this guy go on an absolute rant against uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the sea fig uh, because it just really crowds out a lot of native plants. So um, maybe there should just be a campaign for Californians to just start eating all of the sea figs because if those seeds couldn't get there, then it would, it would uh, <laughs> uh, we, maybe we could stop it by eating it. Yeah, well, I'll I'll start that campaign over here. <laughs> yeah, please do. Um, again, then the last little thing is, which um, is one reason why I think they are so successful, is they're one of the few plants, like a lot of succulents, that use a different version of photosynthesis called CAM photosynthesis, which I've talked about a few episodes. There's the most common photosynthesis is photo. That's a hard word to say. The most common photosynthesis is called C three photosynthesis. There's another photosynthesis called C4 photosynthesis, which that's like an improved version of photosynthesis, so to speak, that's better. But CAM has um, has other advantages, and it makes it really good in um, in uh, drier environments. And particularly, oh. I mean, by the ocean, it's not dry, but it's a lot of salt water. And so, like, uh, CAM plants can deal with that better. And so it, it can be a very hardy plant, and lots of succulents have this uh, CAM, uh, which is... 
I'll link in the show notes or people can listen to other episodes. It has some name of some acid and the mechanism for how it, um, uh, you know, turns CO2 into plant material is, is, is pretty interesting. Oh yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Well, yeah, well, that's the, that's the ice plant or the sea fig. It's so interesting. I didn't know anything about ice plants, but yeah, it's hard to imagine, honestly, a beach out here without ice plants. <laughs> They're just yeah. everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, take a picture of a, of a fruit if you see it. I, I, I didn't, I didn't know to look for that until now. So that sounds very interesting. Yeah. Do you have any idea what time of year the fruit would? I think it's more of a summer thing. Yeah, I think it's more of a summer thing. And I think the the window is pretty short. So that might be one reason why they're not super common. But I think you can get a lot of them when they're around. And then I think they are often sold dried as well. So um, they do preserve well. And so, um, yeah, people make a jam. Uh, there's probably other cool stuff you can do with it. And I, yeah, I went, read one account where someone was like, yeah, I, I read you could eat them. So I tried it and I was just like eating them all along the beach. And so they apparently taste pretty wow, good. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I will, I will be on the lookout for them this summer then. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Thank you so much for having me. Yo, VIP. Let's kick it. Ah, yes, the well-known 90s rap song about the ice plant. The calla lily is one of those plants that you just can't help but notice, and I think because of that, uh, humans have put a lot of meaning onto it, like we heard from Kelly while we were talking about that plant. But I think ice plant may be the opposite. It's one of those plants that tends to fade in the background, and I think a lot of people uh, don't even notice. And uh, thinking about that, uh, reminding me of a term that I learned while listening to the Garden DC podcast hosted by Kathy Gents, uh, who's the editor of the Washington Gardener magazine. And in uh, a recent episode of the podcast, she was speaking with Mark Wethington, uh, who's the director of the J.C. Ralston Arboretum. And they were talking about this concept of plant blindness, which uh, may be more appropriately or more accurately called plant awareness disparity. And this concept was coined by two uh, biology professors, one James H. Wandersee and the other one Elizabeth Schusler. And this is the idea that humans have problems noticing plants. Uh, and, and honestly, I think I've had that in the past. I think I wasn't aware of plants so much later in life. And I think this podcast has made me even more aware of plants. But, but here's the definition that they coined for plant blindness or plant awareness disparity. Um, it is the inability to see or notice the plants in one's own environment, leading to A, the inability to recognize the importance of plants in the biosphere and in human affairs, the inability to appreciate the aesthetic and unique biological features of the life forms belonging to the plant kingdom, and C, the misguided anthropocentric ranking of plants as inferior to animals, leading to the erroneous conclusion that they are unworthy of human consideration. And it's really interesting. I think, I think this is such an interesting phenomenon that... Uh, I think many people experience, and I think if we can combat that, I think we'll be in a much better place as a society. And, you know, it's interesting. It's not all cultures that have this plant awareness disparity. Um, Certain cultures have a lot more plant awareness. So there might be something about uh, the dominant culture, at least where I live, that leads to this. But being aware of the term, I think, is a good step to avoiding it and uh, noticing the plants around you. And then also maybe listening to this podcast. Honestly, like reading about this uh, situation, I feel like 
Rootbound as a podcast might be a great tool to combat plant awareness disparity. Let me read a few more symptoms of plant awareness disparity in the first paper written by Wannerstein and Schusler, where they were defining this new term. And, and maybe think about how some of those uh, might apply to you or, or, uh, or might have applied to you in the past. It's in- pretty interesting. So here are the symptoms of plant awareness disparity. One, failing to see, take notice of, or focus attention on the plants in one's daily life. This one comes up a lot to me when I'm asking people that be on the show, because sometimes I got to tease out of them. Hey, what plant means something to you? And they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know if there's any plants. But they're like, if you think about it for just a minute, plants are everywhere. And I think that first symptom of uh, plant awareness disparity rings true there. Another symptom of plant awareness disparity is thinking that plants are merely the backdrop of, for animal life. And I saw really one example of this, which I'll put in the show notes. It was this picture, and it was this jungle scene with a monkey in it. And the question was, what is this a picture of? And most people would just answer, it's a picture of a monkey, even though the scene is dominated by plants. But humans see the monkey, or at least humans in this culture see the monkey and not the plants. Another symptom of plant awareness disparity is the misunderstanding of what kinds of matter and energy plants require to stay alive. I think that's something we who anyways try to take over house plant. Maybe you've had that experience, that symptom. Uh, D, overlooking the importance of plants in one's daily affairs. I said that in many episodes as well. Another symptom is failing to distinguish between the differing timescales of plant and animal activity. This is really interesting because it's so different. Um, I think we have a difficult time understanding that timescale of plants. Also, lacking hands-on experiences in growing, observing, identifying plants in one's own geographic region. Uh, This is something you can very easily combat by just doing that, and I I had that experience myself. Failing to explain the basic plant science underlying nearby plant communities, including plant growth, nutrition, reproduction, and relevant ecological considerations. Another symptom is lacking awareness that plants are central to a key biochemical cycle, the carbon cycle, and Finally, being insensitive to the aesthetic qualities of plants and their structures, especially with respect to their adaptations, coevolution, colors, dispersal, diversity, growth habits, sense, sizes, sounds, spacings, strengths, symmetry, tactility, tastes, and textures. And so, yeah, I, I found this concept so fascinating and this description of the symptoms of it to be something that I feel like is so prevalent in, in like modern life, at least in my culture and uh i don't know maybe i think rootbound as a podcast can help combat that but anyway i think now you're aware of plant awareness disparity um maybe you can share that with some other people i'll put some links to some interesting academic articles in the show notes there's a lot out there about this now super fascinating topic and i just wanted to share with that with you at the end of today's episode thank you for listening my guest on this episode of rootbound was kelly armijo Kelly is a data enthusiast, horseback rider, and ocean lover. And shout out to Calla the Cat, who is the best flower girl I have ever seen. We're really glad you're feeling better. If you like Rootbound and you want to help support the show, you can go to rootboundpodcast.com support to find out all the ways you can help out, including just telling a friend. Word of mouth is key. Rootbound is hosted by the rustic oracle, Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. But if you can go outside, try to improve your plant awareness disparity. Sepals, the working plants pedal. <laughs>